Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I have the very special privilege of performing Pilgrim Faith's first in-person interview with my good friend, Jim Pachta. There's much I can say about Jim. He serves as an elder at my church, New St. Peter's Presbyterian in Dallas, Texas. He's had a local counseling practice in the DFW area for a few decades. He's a wonderful husband and father. Uh, but I realized Jim has a unique story when I when I randomly began to talk to him about homosexuality one day, and he hit me with a surprise. I used to be homosexual, he said. And I have to say, I wasn't quite sure how to take this. Used to be? Uh, what about the celibate gay Christian trend, I thought to myself. And what about all those stories of conversion therapy that turned out to be not quite conversion therapy? Also, isn't conversion therapy bad? Uh, it turns out uh, Jim wasn't into any of that. <laughs> Rather, what I found as I talked to Jim about this material and subsequently heard him speak on some of this at our church was that his insight on the subject was, from what I could tell, very unique and uniquely helpful. In the last few years especially, Jim and his fantastic wife, Linda, have been able to share their story with many people. He has recently written for the Gospel Coalition for Modern Reformation magazine, and he and Linda have been doing several conferences a year on these pastoral issues for local churches. Two very encouraging developments are that Jim was chosen to be part of the Presbyterian Church in America's study committee on these issues at last year's General Assembly in light of the revoice controversy, which we'll discuss in a moment. And Jim is also hard at work on a book about the redemption of same-sex attraction. Interested listeners will want to keep a lookout for this book, and listening pastors interested in a church conference on these issues should look up Jim and Linda through either the New St. Peter's uh, website or Jim's counseling practice website, Pocta Counseling. Uh, they're doing a lot to help the rest of us deal with these complex pastoral issues. So I'm excited today about uh, this conversation, and especially at how Jim's own story can really help each of us in our struggle to believe the gospel. So, Jim, thanks for being here with us today. Um, and I suppose the first thing to do would be to just ask you to tell your story for 10 minutes or so, as, or you know, it doesn't need to be, you can be however long you want. Uh, as listeners will soon become a, a aware, a large part of your teaching has to do with the redemption of one's story. Uh, and so a fitting place to begin is to hear your story uh, told to us. Well, it's great doing this. This is exciting. I, uh, I love being able to share uh, my story and the gospel in my story, as I believe, like Tim Keller said in uh, the Center Church, we are the contextualization of the gospel. Mm. And that even somebody like me, with my background and my story, I get to uh, live a life that preaches Christ and him crucified. So this is exciting. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Mm. So 63 years ago, I was born to a woman who was severely abused. She was alcoholic. Her husband was in prison for sexually assaulting um, her 13, his 13-year-old daughter. Mm. And we all were removed from the home, my sister, a brother, and myself. Within the next year, I was adopted by a family who, this couple was told, they could not, they could not uh, have their own children. Mm. A couple of years later, they had uh, adopted another child, and then two years later, another. 
shortly thereafter, they took in four foster girls. It was supposed to be for a couple of months and it turned into eight and a half years. Mm. During that time, they found out they were pregnant and had a child. And two years later, they had another child. So that turned into nine children. <laughs> um, so I had uh, six sisters. And as I was growing up with this very hard, harsh, alcoholic father, a very kind of cold, calculating mother, um, I felt out of place. And I related more to my sisters than to my brothers who were younger than I. I, I grew up feeling like that proverbial girl trapped in a boy's body. Mm. I knew that my father was ashamed of me. I was not rough and tumble the way that he would have uh, desired. Um, he let me know it in no uncertain terms. I was terrified of him. He was violent and vile. I grew up with a lot of pornography around the house. Um, when I was a uh, teenager, I told him I was same-sex attracted. I told him I thought I was gay. And he regaled me with tales of him beating up effeminate gay men in downtown Cleveland who would follow him into restrooms. Mm. And the goal, I think, on his part was to shame me into uh, changing my mind, mm. which I did. Mm. I, I told him, oh, I'm making a mistake. This isn't true. I was about 14 at the time. So I started taking drugs to deny my same-sex attraction and my transgenderism. And I spent the next few years kicked out of the house, living with a foster family or other friends until I graduated from high school. Um, I got uh, fired from a job when I was 18 for theft and decided uh, it was time to leave Ohio. During that time, I came to faith mm. at a, a church um, revival and shortly thereafter was told that if you struggle with homosexuality, if you behave homosexually, you lose your salvation. So I thought, easy come, easy go. I got saved. I got unsaved and I just moved on my merry <laughs> little way. <laughs> got fired from this job, decided to join the Navy and, uh, uh, asked the recruiter if they have Navy bases in San Diego where I could go to. He said, there are several in San Diego. And uh, I said, okay, great. Sign me up. I'm out of here. And I left Ohio, never to return. Um, got out to San Diego and found the gay community. And I jumped in big time. Mm. Um, I was getting all the attention I could possibly get. Flattery, like I never believed possible. And I thought I had, I, I had come home. Hmm. Um, met a guy. And we, uh, we started seeing one another and eventually moved in with, the, with each other. Um, I was supposed to be a communications technician interpretive. 
um, which is uh, I was going to study several languages, and all that was uh, required was a security clearance. Mm. I passed all the exams, I passed all the tests, and I was doing great until that security clearance, and they found out about the drug use, and I uh, said, okay, well, I failed, I'll just leave the Navy, and they said, oh, we've got you now. Mm. You're a cook. <laughs> I was humiliated. Um, I knew nothing about cooking. My mother would not have known a spice if it bit her on the behind. <laughs> and so they sent me to culinary school, and something interesting happened while I was there. I met people. See, I grew up in a little town in northern Ohio that was pure white, and suddenly met African-Americans from New Orleans, and they taught me how to make gumbo. Mm. and dirty rice. Mm. I met Hispanics who taught me how to make tamales. Mm. I met Filipinos who made the best adobo and ponset. Mm. My life changed that at that time. Um, a culinary uh, world opened up mm. to me. I used to go to a little French restaurant in La Jolla, north of San Diego, where I got crepes filled with crab and, and lobster and mussels covered in a white wine sauce. Mm. Um, I never had anything like it growing up. I, uh, had it, I washed it down with a glass of Chablis mm. and had uh, Napoleon for dessert mm. with a, a cup of cappuccino. I, I was in heaven. Mm. I was uh, actually kind of glad that I failed my security clearance. <laughs> this was a, a whole new world to me. So I was stationed, I, I got stationed at my next Navy base, which was also in San Diego, which is where I wanted to go so badly growing up in Northern Ohio. And uh, it was Miramar Naval Air Station where they filmed Top Gun. Yeah. And uh, um, I was putting my Navy stuff, even though I had a place off base, I was I'm putting my Navy stuff in uh, my barracks. And uh, these guys came to my door. This guy, six foot four, blonde and blue and built. I thought, what's going on here? And he had a Bible. And Thor. Took, yeah, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, it took me just a few minutes to realize I was being evangelized. That Oh, thanks, guys, but no thanks. I've already been down this route. Got it. Lost my salvation all in the same week. Um, <laughs> and he says, oh, you can't lose your salvation. I said, yes, you can. He said, no, you can't. He said, yes, you can. He said, if God has chosen you before the foundation of the world, said, no, God doesn't choose you. You choose God. No, God chooses you. No, you choose God. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. And uh, he says, well, I'll tell you what. Rather than argue about it, why don't I come to your room and we'll do a Bible study every week and see what the Bible has to say about it? I said, well, I work all night long. I'm a mess management specialist. I'm a cook. Right. And uh, he said, uh, fine. What time do you get off work? I said, six in the morning. I'll be there. Huh. Right. Well, this is weird. But okay, you want to you wanna meet me at six o'clock in the morning to do a Bible study? Let's do it. And that's how I became best friends with Tom Cordell, who would disciple me for the next few years. Mm. And we became best friends even to this day. Mm. Um, but I didn't tell him about the deepest parts of me. 
You see, I had already gone down that route before mm. with other Christians. I didn't let him know I was transgendered. I didn't let him know I was gay. I didn't let him know I did drugs and drank to passing out and blackouts. Um, I was going to listen to what he had to say, and then I was going to make up my mind down the road which route I was going to take. So we started meeting, and we started doing Bible study. Um, and after a while, it became clear, after the next few years, it became clear I needed to make a decision for Christ or for the gay community. I, I knew they were incompatible um, mm -hmm. through my study of the scripture. But I also knew what I needed, since God was really not going to be on my side. Mm -hmm. um, I was so filled with self-contempt. God didn't like me very much. Mm -hmm. um, the love of God was a concept that failed me. What I needed was a wife that would straighten me out hmm. and that would get God on my side. He would have to bless her. I'd have God over a barrel hmm. and I could get the crumbs hmm. of those blessings. So I got a, I got a, a ship at my next um, um, base, which was also in San Diego, 32nd Street. And uh, when I got on the ship, we went off on a Westpac cruise and went to the Philippines as our base and then went off to Hong Kong, Korea, um, um, and, and other places. And every time I came back to Subic Bay, there was this young woman there who I decided to take an interest in. And uh, she was going to become my wife. She didn't know it yet. <laughs> but uh, I, I figured there were so many men there that I, I needed to hone in and, uh, uh, and get her interested in me. We sang together at the Overseas Christian Servicemen Center every night. We worked with orphans together um, in Post City, which is a city right outside the base mm. of Subic Bay. And every time I came into port, we would meet. I would make meals for her because now I'm a cook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first meal, chicken cacciatore. Huh. It was my favorite meal. Um, and then when I left for good, I, got, I went to Japan. I called her up and asked her to marry me, and she said yes. We moved to Dallas where I went to Dallas Bible College. We were going to become missionaries and go back to the Philippines and work with, uh, work with those orphans. Got pregnant pretty quickly um, because I had a lot to prove because mm. I had forgotten to mention something to her mm. that she had just married a transgendered gay man. Mm. I forgot to tell her that. Mm. Kind of important. Um, it was too risky. I was too scared. And we ended up losing that child well into the pregnancy. And her name was Rebecca. And uh, it was uh, very hard for both of us. We knew, had no family here. We really didn't know anybody here. And uh, it was a tough time. Um, got pregnant again. Right before we were having our first son, um, I decided that would be a good time to tell her about me. Mm. Right before delivery. Mm. And uh, she was deeply hurt. Uh, in fact, she's, I think she was angry at me for the next 10 years. Um, started talking to a pastor, friend of ours, 
about my struggle with same-sex attraction and how to work through it and work with it and deal with it. And uh, over the next couple of years, um, another guy who was struggling joined us and then another and then another until we had this large group and then we divided into two groups. And it just it became clear that uh, this was becoming a ministry. And so I quit my job. I was working at a uh, um, uh, reformed bookstore and uh, decided that uh, time to quit that and go full time and start uh, um, looking for funding to support a, a ministry to gays and lesbians. And that's what we did. We started a ministry for the next quite a few years. Mm. My problem was I was faking it. I was trying hard to be straight. Um, I was not dealing well with my um, attraction and desires. When I got baptized shortly after coming to faith, when I was living in San Diego, the pastor told me, fake it until you make it. And so I was, I had listened to him and that's what I was trying to do. I was faking it. Anytime I had, you know, these desires come up, I would shove them down. I would stuff them. I would suppress my desires. And sad to say that that ministry failed. I, it did not end well. And the next 10 years after that, I kept uh, um, stuffing it and stuffing it and stuffing it and, and uh, living in denial until I became agoraphobic and suicidal. And my wife was gone um, one time to a conference and I was homeschooling my now three sons and told them that they had the day off from school. Let's play games. Anything you want to eat, I'll fix. Because, <laughs> right? Anything you want for dessert, right? I had been the head pastry chef at the Anatole Hotel. So anything you want for dessert, I will make. Because I knew something they did not know. Mm. Tomorrow they would not have a daddy. Mm. Because I couldn't take it any longer. So I was sitting there after they went to sleep writing my suicide note. I have faked it. As long as I can fake it, I can no longer make it. And my wife came home early hmm. and stopped me. And she had a list of 40 things, she said, coming home from a grief conference hmm. that I had never grieved in my life. Now, I said, why in the world would I ever want to look back at those things that were painful enough the first time? Why would I want to go back and look at them again? And she started telling me about the concept of grieving and mourning and how that would be helpful. And then the words of Jesus came to my mind, blessed are those who mourn. Hmm. You see, there's something both transformative and redemptive in the act of mourning. Hmm. So I added 14 things to that hmm. list of 40 that night. And I started leaving my house. I started growing in Christ. I started growing in my faith. I started walking with God again and I started loving my wife and my children appropriately. I started understanding what redemption means. I started looking back at the sorrow in my story and seeing Jesus there mm. saying, I know this hurts now, but wait, just you wait until you see what I have to offer you out of all of this. 
This is good stuff. So that's where I am today. That's why I do what I do today. Nothing to hide, nothing to prove. Linda and I have a phenomenal relationship today because of, not in spite of, our stories Hmm. and my story. Well, lovely. And I'm sure we'll hear some of the insight you've had as we work through some of these questions. You know, these are, as you well know, you know, complicated. And I think a lot of people in the church are are confused about what to do when you encounter people having these struggles, you know, what are we to say? And so, you know, a couple of, one thing that that comes to mind is um, starting more generally, you know, what do you, what do you think is deficient in the, maybe in the general evangelical approach to LGBT issues for, for people struggling with these identities? What, what unhelpful messages do you think they commonly hear and what helpful messages do you think they often don't hear? I think that one of the main things that they hear is that there is somehow something worse about struggling with same-sex attraction than any other sin. That on the totem pole of depravity, that's at the bottom. Hmm. Now, I I don't mind taking that. If somebody wants me to be worse than any other sinner, I don't mind taking that. Mm. If it's true that where sin abounds, grace does that much more abound. Mm. If they want me to have more grace than them, I am willing (laughs) to take that on. (laughs) I just don't believe that's true. Mm. But I think that one of the reasons why so few people come forward with their struggle of same-sex attraction or being transgendered, their sexual brokenness remains hidden is because they are going to be pointed at, judged, and condemned as worse than others. I'm working with a young man right now who came out to his pastor. He told his pastor, um, or or he told a, a woman who told his pastor, and now he's being accused of being a pedophile. Mm. It's, it just doesn't it just doesn't go together right but he, his reputation now is ruined and he can't even go back to that church mm. because it's the worst sin of all according to his congregation right so I think I think that's where the struggle comes in now only a believer is going to struggle right I mean you asked about the struggle only a believer struggles a non-believer is not going to struggle they, they they're going to celebrate. But a believer is going to struggle. We are going to struggle with temptation. But in Christ, we get to turn that temptation into a trial and count it as joy because that trial is where we get to trust in Christ and in his spirit. Um receiving the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience right right and as i'm sure you might be able to imagine one of the one of the most difficult things for for many who identify as gay or lesbian is that it feels like so much a part of their kind of deep identity and our culture especially can can hardly imagine the idea that you could tell someone you can be changed 
without that implying some psychological violence to sort of who they really are. And so maybe another way of saying this is it just doesn't seem plausible to most people that you could tell a gay person, you can be fully yourself and not be gay at the same time. Uh, what would you say to a, to a, a gay person who feels that tension? A gay person who is not a believer, I would tell them that that it all depends on how you define change. Mm. I am not going to be defined by my temptations or by my struggle. Mm. That I am not denying anything. Mm. I, 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 I don't, I'm a therapist. I don't believe in denial. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, I, I believe in acknowledging everything. I feel what I feel. But what they don't have, I have. I have the Spirit of God, the paraclete, the one who is called alongside to walk with me, who groans with me, who groans for me in words too deep to be uttered, who, who loves me, who is caring for me through my struggle. I don't have to face it alone. And he actually uses my struggle to grow me, to transform me into the image of Christ. I don't believe in denial of any sort. Um, Same-sex attraction, which I struggle is no more of a struggle than my pride, my arrogance, you know, um, e eating too much, drinking too much, drugs, lying, cheating. Oh, those are just a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Same-sex attraction is the, the least of my problems. Mm. I've got a spirit who walks alongside, who comforts me. He is my comforter. He is my paraclete. He walks alongside that I don't have to struggle alone. Change, it doesn't mean I am now void of struggle. Change is I have somebody with me through it. And there's a purpose behind it. And there's a goal in front of it. Um. Speaking of change, you know, one of the one of the big concerns out there is over, uh, you know, so-called conversion therapy. You know, this is a big debate these days. And anytime someone talks in the language of, you know, and such as some of you were, you know, that Paul can say to about homosexuality, there's this concern of that kind of conversion therapy concern in the background for a lot of people. Uh, how would you distinguish your own pastoral approach to this from people who are taking that approach to, to yeah. same-sex attraction. Yeah, even back when we had our ministry back in the 80s, um, there was an umbrella organization called Exodus International, mm -hmm. and they believed in conversion therapy, and most of the ministries or, or all the ministries that signed up under them um, did conversion therapy. We wouldn't join. I wouldn't join because I didn't believe in conversion therapy even then. Mm. See, my goal was never heterosexuality. Mm. That, that was never a goal. I don't believe in turning 
principles into regulations, biblical principles into regulation. I don't believe that God has given us some guarantee that is going to take place in glory now. Mm. We live in a struggle of the already not yet as reformed believers. We are not guaranteed heaven here. Mm. This is not, I'm sorry to say, or not, our best life now. <laughs> if it is, run. Yeah. <laughs> right? So conversion therapy offered promises the Bible doesn't offer. And it's... Uh, it, that really didn't end well. Mm. Um, a, so many of the leadership were so disappointed and discouraged that they went back into the gay community thinking this Bible stuff is faulty. Well, right. what they learned wasn't Bible stuff in the first place. Right. So they went into it wrong and they went out of it doubly wrong. Right. And that's sad to me. Right. What would you say um, if the goal then isn't to to sort of become heterosexual? Uh, you know, you're married, and so like, how would yeah. you define what what a what a godly, sanctified life looks like? You know, you're married, but you know, you don't necessarily say like, I have the internal feelings of every heterosexual out there. And so, how would you define right? Yeah, orientation. I guess the goal isn't heterosexuality. The goal I've heard is holiness. I, I like to put it like this: I don't want to be a heterosexual. I just want to be a Linda sexual. Right. I want to be attracted to my wife, and I am. I want to move toward my wife and penetrate her deeply, spiritually, right. emotionally, and physically, like nobody, no other man can. Right. Loving her well. Right. This is my focus. Right. Right. My gender and sexuality is geared now toward her. I don't care about every other woman out there. Why in the world would <laughs> I want to be attracted to every woman? This makes, I, I don't think any man should be moving toward every woman. Right. Right. Should be attracted to every woman out there. Right. That, that's uh, unfathomable to me. Right. And so the goal is to be oriented toward a person. A person. And that that is kind of in, in one way, the essence of being masculine then and being a man is actually to, yeah, to, yeah, to be oriented and move toward the person God has given you. That's right. See, Zachar and Nekaba, male and female, in Genesis one twenty-seven, Zachar, male, and Nekaba, female, were designed in the image or as the image of God to be one flesh to reflect Trinitarian glory. Mm. And when these two reflect the the two in one reflect the three in one. Powerful things happen. Mm. That's all I want to do. I just want to. I want to be one with my wife to reflect God's character and nature. Mm. His His community in uh, my community of one other. Mm. Um, the The beauty of that mm. is what I'm what I'm after. Mm. Mm. Um, of course, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if people hear these things and they're skeptical, right? Because <laughs> we're skeptical these days of stories of people who, who claim to have been transformed on some of these things. You know, we're, we're always waiting for the breaking story about how the 
supposedly transformed gay person is going to be found in the park with a lover or whatnot. Uh, And your experience in counseling on the ground, because one thing that you've had the opportunity to do is also counsel people who struggle with these issues over a long period of time. Um, What kinds of transformation have you seen on the ground? Assuming of course, that there's a, you know, a range of experiences out there is, is, is radical transformation or things that most people that we would consider radical more frequent than people think. And perhaps as an aside, you know, we talked about this a little bit already, but what, what does that look like? We often frame it in terms of homosexual to heterosexual, but um, uh, actually in this question, I think we've already covered this a little bit, but some of it is about becoming attracted toward a particular person. But then back to the original portion of that question, then basically what, uh, uh, what have you seen in your counseling and such? I mean, how, how frequent is transformation that maybe the news says, you know, this never happens, you know, but maybe in your practice you say, no, <laughs> I'm staring at it. Uh, sure, yeah. sure. So, yeah, there, there is failure out there. I'm, I'm speaking as one who has, who failed miserably. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to gauge the truth of God by statistics and there's a spectrum of change Mm. as well so that I don't know of anybody who has been same-sex attracted who is 100% other sex attracted Mm. I, I just don't know that that exists. I don't know why that is supposed to exist. Mm. I don't know why that has to exist. I don't know any heterosexual man who is absolutely and only attracted to his wife and no other woman, Mm. who doesn't experience lust towards somebody who is not his wife. I don't know of that either. Mm. Uh, We are sinful creatures. Mm. You know, we we are not just depraved, we're totally depraved. Mm. And, and there's the struggle. The go- moral perfection is not a fruit of the Spirit. Mm. And so that's not my goal. Mm. You know, my goal is to, to love Jesus because he has loved me, and out of that love, I'm going to love others, starting with Linda. Mm. And then my three sons and their wives and my grandchildren and my fellowship and my friends and my neighbors. I'm going to let that love overflow. Um, Moral perfection, I'm moving in that direction. Mm. Um, And when I see Jesus face to face, I will be like him. Mm. So transformation, then. Mm. I'm, I'm not worried about it now. Mm. That I used to, I I faked it, I tried, I white knuckled it, I pretended, I lived in denial, and it didn't end well. Mm. Now, I walk in the spirit, so I don't carry out the desires of the flesh, Mm. right? I know the works of the flesh, I practiced them well, Mm. right? Mm. The fruit of the spirit is the result of walking in the spirit, Um, So I work with a lot of men and women who are same-sex attracted, and there is movement. There is uh, is 
change over time, but that is never my focus. Hmm. That is never my goal. Let's gauge today. Are you more attracted to your wife today than last week? Are you more attracted to women than men? You guys, I would never put anybody right. under that kind of pressure. You know, do you love Jesus today more than you love your sin? And then let God deal with the details. Right, right. Which actually causes transformation. Which actually causes transformation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, you know, one of the reasons I thought this would be such a, a helpful conversation to have is, as you were all aware, we've in the PCA had this this revoice controversy. Mm. You know, a conference about about ministering to people with same sex attraction and all. And a lot of the country has been over whether or not celibate Christians with same sex attraction. Uh, should redeem the label gay, you know, calling themselves something like gay Christian uh, because of the connotations of gayness with other dimensions of life, you know, even if it's not sexual expression. Uh, but before we talk about those issues themselves, what kinds of errors do you think we, even as the PCA or just the reform community, are in danger of on both sides when we approach a controversy like this in a you know, in a real denomination with real actors, as, as you well know, you know, some have heralded this as a sign of the end for the PCA and others have celebrated as a measure of how great the PCA is. Oh. You know, so where do you where do you think uh, what, what ditches can we fall off on here and how do we how do we wisely navigate this? Right. I, you, well, you just said it. Well, I think those are ditches on either side. <clears throat> John 17, Jesus talked about his you know, being, you know, glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son and the love that they had for, have for one another, the love he has for his, those friends of his, and that his prayer for unity, you know, the glory, the love, and the unity. And I would, that we would focus more on our unity in Christ than our sometimes ridiculous differences. Mm. So revoice. I'm not I'm not a proponent of a lot that comes out of revoice. Mm -hmm. I'm just not. I I know several people involved with revoice. These are brothers of mine whom I love dearly. And appreciate much. Um, they are asking good questions. And the reason they are asking them is because we have been forced to ask them mm. because of some of the things that we've talked about already. Mm. Year, a few, several years ago, when I first started coming to my church, there was a man who was kind of holding court. Mm. There were a group of people around him. He's no longer at my church. Mm. Um, he went on to be an elder at another church. Mm. Um, but he was holding court, talking about those faggots who were taking over the country. Mm. It broke me. It devastated me. I just spent years... struggling with feeling steamrolled 
by the church. And I'm coming to this brand new church. I've met several people. I, I, and it's like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> not on my watch. <laughs> right? And I, and I felt like I had not planned on telling anybody my story as of that, you know, that soon. And, and I felt like I had to. It's like, <laughs> you don't get to talk like that. Right. You don't know who's listening. You don't know who's hearing you. Right. Right. But that pushes people, the parlance, into the closet. That mm. pushes people into silence mm. where they're not going to get the help that they need. They're not going to get the love that they need, mm. the counsel that they need. Revoice is a response to conversion therapy, which mm. is harmful. Mm. Revoice is a response to this kind of behavior in the church as if it's us versus them. It's not. Them is us. Right. We better face that fact. And that uh, you don't lose your salvation because of your struggle. You shouldn't lose your, um, um, you shouldn't be defrocked because you struggle with SSA um, and, and on and on. So this is where Revoice is. Hmm. Now, it's hard to pinpoint what Revoice stands for because it's not a unified approach. Right. There are many men and women in Revoice, you know, from, um, yeah, from, from one end of the spectrum to the other. There, there are a lot of different ideas going on. So you have to take the ideas individually. Mm -hmm. But these are men and women who love Jesus. They do. And they're struggling to come up with answers. And they've changed some of their understandings mm -hmm. as they've been challenged over right. the last year. That's been encouraging. Yeah. Very encouraging. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but what about like, uh, you know, the nomenclature, one of the big controversies was over this nomenclature, then getting to a more specific issue, this nomenclature of the, the gay Christian, which I think entered the evangelical imagination largely through somebody like Wes Hill, I think was writing about this. Sure. Um, how would you evaluate the phenomenon of people, you know, using this phrase, like trying to kind of redeem the, the notion of gay in a sort of way? Sure, sure. I mean, I get it. I don't, I don't care for it. Um, the word, the term gay today means a lot more than it meant 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Mm. It can mean I, that I, I am attracted to other men. It doesn't mean I'm sleeping with other. It doesn't mean right. I'm going to go after other men. It may mean that I just have a struggle with being attracted. Right. Um, that that it can be a, a, a adjectival. Right. And that's it. Right. Somebody over forty years of age is going to interpret it as oh, you're you're having sex with other men. Right. I mean, so again, it's a. It's a strange word, and it right. means many things. So, by and large, I think it's unhelpful. Right. I I don't I don't appreciate it much. Right. I, I, I would not use it. I've gotten along without ever using it. Right. It it's cumbersome to say I'm a Christian who struggles with same sex attraction at times. 
gay Christian is easier to say right. than a long sentence of explanation. Right. Um, so I understand why somebody like Wes, and he's, uh, he's explained it well, and I understand why he would, uh, would want to use it. Right. Um, that's number one. I don't think it's helpful. Number two, I think it smacks of being a victim. Hmm. Um, that I'm going to be defined by my temptation. I'm going to be defined by my, my sin of my past. That I'm stuck. That I that I that I don't have an option. Hmm. Um, I just I'm more than a conqueror. I'm not a victim. I I, I have options, hmm. regardless of what I struggle with, regardless of what I'm tempted. By. Right. You know who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right. Right. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to let it define me. And they would say that it's that it's not defining them, but that you know Rahab was called the harlot, but Rahab didn't call herself the harlot. Right. You know, right. God God's used that I think as a means of reminding us which Rahab that was, but that doesn't mean that Rahab walked around going, "Hi, I'm Rahab the harlot." Right. <laughs> you know, or I'm a harlot Jew, or I'm a harlot right. Christian. Or, right. I, I, that's that's a weak ar argument yeah. to me. There, there seems to be, in part of that conversation, uh, yeah, there's some who, it seems like, use the phrase gay Christian, and gay is sort of like a, hey, I'm just being honest that I struggle with this, same-sex attracted Christian or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. there also seems to be a subset of the argument that is uh, kind of like using gay, like gay isn't just a, there's some things that are good about being gay. And so there's some people that mm -hmm. want to use the phrase gay Christian to sort of say, uh, 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 it's actually, a, it's not just a, hey, I'm being honest about the struggles I have, but also, hey, I don't want to get rid of this identity, if you will, because there's some good things about that identity. And so how would you process it at that level? And, that, and that's the end of the spectrum that I have real issues with, the gay aesthetic that they want to um, embrace. Right. Um, that's problematic. Right. Right. And I, I would never, I would never claim a gay aesthetic. Because mm. um, I think it's interesting. We will fight against, hey, if I'm, if I'm artistic, if I'm sensitive, if I'm creative, you know, that don't, don't label me gay because of that. Right. And then they turn right around and say, it's a gay aesthetic to be creative and sensitive and artistic. It's like, you can't have it both ways. Right. Right. And, and yeah, that is one of the curious phenomena here is like why or any, what is it that's specifically associated with being gay that even, you know, heterosexual couldn't have like, um, uh, you know, there, there's heterosexuals who know how to pick out ties really well, you know, like, right. I, you know, like it doesn't, you know, so uh, right. I, I don't know. And I could be misunderstanding some details, there, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in the church, then, what would you say is is the best way um, to minister? Well, maybe that's overstating it. What's what's the way we need to know <laughs> uh, to minister to people struggling with same-sex attraction? If you were to answer the same questions posed by Revoice, what would you want to see the church doing to minister to people with same-sex attraction? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, log spec. 
if I if 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 somebody in the church who is not understanding what it was like it is like to be same sex attracted, just see your sin as a log and see their sin as a smack. Just kind of the way Jesus told you to do it. Mm. Right? And they'll tell you everything you could ever need to know. You don't need to know anything. They'll 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 let you in on it, right? Just don't be judgmental. Don't be condemning. Just be understanding. Be empathetic. Hmm. Um, weep with those who weep. Um, that is a far better thing than you pulling out the six or seven clobber verses, hmm. letting them know... They, oh, this well, the Bible says the Bible said. Trust me, they already know those verses <laughs> better than you do, <laughs> right? Those they know that that those things are sin. Yeah, but they don't know about the forgiveness, mm. the redemption. Mm. Uh, they don't understand how that works out. Mm. The community of saints, they get the gay community, but they don't understand the community of of believers that can provide more, exceedingly more, than what the gay community can provide. Right. Which is, which is maybe in one way precisely why it's such a scandal when the church doesn't provide that, because it's putting, you're putting people in a situation where, uh, where are you going to go for a community if you can't find it here, right. you know? Um, yeah, exactly. that's, yeah, that's helpful. Um, let's ask the question for those outside the church, you know, so, you know, you have a friend who is gay and that friend learns about, you know, you're a Christian and the friend, the gay friend learns about your position on this matter, which is, can be a little bit awkward. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, right. You know, how do Christians be faithful in such circumstances while also communicating a sort of, you know, diffusing love to your neighbors? Is there, is there something general to say about the kinds of messages or words and lives need to be sending when we meet uh, gay persons, you know, that are they're outside the church. So one one significant practical question these days, so it's kind of a two-parter here, is uh, there's a lot increased pressure, you know, with this pronoun usage thing, right? There's going to be, we're going to see a lot more of these in, in the coming decade or two decades of, Maybe. you know, people of uh, uh, sort of saying, hey, I, I go by, you know, whatever, you know, they, them pronouns or something like that. So maybe that first part is more, most immediately relevant, which is, you know, uh, Christians feel nervous. It's a sensitive issue. And so how do you relate to your gay friends, you know, in a way that's, you know, posi help, helps illuminate the gospel. Right. Uh, and then what about that practical, you know, that kind of practical question? Yeah. It makes them nervous. Good. It should. Excellent. Get nervous. <laughs> Find, enter into that tension. We are not called to comfortability. We are not called to safety. We are called to die to ourselves for the sake of the kingdom, mm. right? We are called to die to our right to be comfortable for the sake of moving toward those who need to hear the truth. Mm. So be nervous and then love well. Mm. I, th I think it's interesting that... Uh, 
gay people are are fascinating people. They're they're wonderful people. Um, I'm going to love them exactly where they are. I'm never going to accept them as they are, hmm. but I'm going to love them where they are. Hmm. I'm not going to try to change them. Um, that's impossible without the spirit. Hmm. It's impossible apart from the gospel. So I'm going to just love them where they are and preach Christ and him crucified where available, where invited, where necessary, where available. Um, have many gay friends. They know where I stand, but they know that I'm not, you know, poking and prodding and, oh, you shouldn't do that or you can't do that. It, the worst thing you can do is to try to change somebody who doesn't have Christ, hmm. right? Um, how can they change without the Spirit? I tried it, hmm. right? Um, I think the book, the letter, Biblical letter for our day is the book of Galatians, hmm. right? Have you begun in the spirit and now perfected in the flesh, right? So we're trying to get people to do things in the flesh that are not theirs to accomplish, but especially on the outside of the church. Right. We're trying to pass laws and get people to behave a certain way. Um, cult, kingdom trumps culture. I'm all for passing laws. I'm all for voting. I'm all for that. But frankly, the, the bulk of my energy is going toward kingdom building, mm. not politics, mm. not laws, mm. but love. I'm going to love them where they are. Mm. So how do you love somebody who's an unbeliever? How do you love somebody who's gay? We're commanded, love your neighbor. How? as yourself. Well, however you're already loving yourself, you get to love your neighbor. You get to love your gay neighbor. So I was a cook in the Navy. I went to culinary school. I went to baking school, chef, pastry chef school. That was good enough for me to get a job as the head pastry chef at the Anatole Hotel here in Dallas, where GA just held their, uh, their general assembly. The Presbyterians just held their general assembly. So one way that I get to love my neighbors is food, mm. right? So gay couple comes to me and they want a, they want a wedding cake. That's a big deal today yeah. about baking cakes, wedding cakes for gay couples. Right. So you know what I'm going to do? Mm. I'm not going to bake them a wedding cake. Mm. I'm going to bake them two. Mm. See, we're told double it up right. in our love. Right, they they uh, get they you want they want your coat. Give them your cloak also. Mm. Right, carry the burden as an extra mile. Mm. So they want two, or they want a cake. I'm, I'm going to bake them two, mm. a wedding cake and a groom's cake. Yeah, I'll let them fight about who's who. That's that's not my concern. <laughs> right, I'm gonna I'm gonna bake them two. I'm gonna make them food. I'm gonna I'm gonna give out of my own story in love to them. Right, right. That's, that's how you love an enemy. That's how you love your neighbor. Um, right. And what do you think about people who's like, feel like they can't do that morally? Like, in other words, if, they, if their conviction is against it, do you think there's a place to I say I would question their conviction. I don't understand hmm. that kind of conviction. What do, we, what do we have to lose by loving our neighbor well? Hmm. Hmm. I, I, I just don't understand it. Right. Right? I wouldn't go to the service personally. Yeah. Because it's a worship service, right? It's a it's a different God or a different way of worshiping God. It's right. It, it draw it's 
lowers the bar. Right. I wouldn't go to the service, but I would bake them a cake. Okay. I would I would make them flowers. Right. Um, if that was your vocation. If, if that were my vocation. Right. Yeah. I, I'm going to love them well. I want to let them know, man, I'm, I'm here for you. Right. But boy, I don't accept you where you are. Right. I love you as you are. I don't accept you where you so are. It's, it's, and I'm going to enter into the tension of the difference. Right. And you want them, you want both of those messages communicated. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. Whereas I think one of the tensions is very often there's sort of pressure to communicate one of those messages, which is uh, sort of full acceptance. Like I'll bake you the cake, but I also won't tell you, I think you need Jesus and I think you need his transformation. Right. Like, you know, and so that's right. a, Right. Um, well, on the one hand, part, part of, uh, I know your message when you, when you, uh, give talks on this and such and conferences is about the role of repentance and all of mm. this, but the word repentance alongside the word obedience, uh, is so thickly overlaid with centuries of, uh, or maybe not even centuries. I and mean, we can just think decades of it in our own experiences or church experiences of just having a certain spiritual vibe, you know, where everything's about obedience and repentance. Um, and it's sometimes hard to hear those words outside the voices who, who carve up the world in simple ways, sound confident when they shouldn't and have their nose in the air about the less morally courageous, you know, so uh, help us hear the word repentance afresh. How would you talk about repentance? Oh, I to this? love repentance. I love this whole concept. Second hmm. Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Hmm. I love this passage. I've been camping out on this passage for the last week. Godly grief, godly sorrow. What my wife came home to tell me mm. that I needed to do. I needed to find the sorrow in my story where I had hurt others, where others had hurt me in sin. Find the sorrow there. And that led to, no, produced a repentance, a metanoia, a reversal of movement that led to a salvation, a deliverance without regret. But a worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is regret. There's a verse in Hosea that says, my people do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. There's the difference between repentance and regret. Sometimes they look alike. Right. Right. I can repent on my bed wailing. Right. right? But it's crying to God from my heart. Or I can just wail on my bed and I got caught. I hate it when I get caught. Right. Or, I, or it didn't give me the satisfaction I was looking for. And that makes me angry mm. or that hurts me. Mm. Right. But when we cry to God from our heart, right? Changing direction. I was talking to a, a group not that long ago about we who are same sex attraction, attracted, need to repent of even our desires. Even our appetites, even our attractions. 
And the argument was, oh, the drudgery. We're telling them that they have to, to repent of that every single day. How hard is that? The drudgery of that. And I thought, you, get, you need to redefine repentance. Mm. If that's your view of repentance, I'm sorry for you. Mm. Here's the deal. We, as an el- me as an elder, I as an elder, have to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Mm. And I'm told that repentance is an evangelical grace. Mm. That makes it a gift from God. It's a grace. It's a gift. Not necessarily something I have to do so much. It's something I get to do. It's a direction that is God-ordained. It's a direction toward life. It's a direction that is good for me. Mm. I want to do that. Mm. I want to move in that direction. And if I'm going the wrong direction... Godly sorrow is going to produce in me that good direction, that mm. repentance. I want more of that. Right. Right? Right. And so when I get to repent, rather than have to repent, right? when I get to repent, that leads to salvation without regret. Now, I don't regret my sin, sorrow, and shame because it is what God has used in my life to draw me to himself, to get me to change direction. Mm. Our repentance is a beautiful thing. Right. Because it brings life. Right. So there's a, there's a sense of, yeah, the way you've talked about repentance, and I know it's helped me so much as well as an individual, is to think of it as you're not getting it rightly unless you see it as just relieving. Yes. Uh, repentance is actually kind of relief from your own self-sabotage. Amen. You get to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's, a wonderful, that's a wonderful way of putting it. So, right, the, the idea that this is a, oh, it's a burden every day. It's like, no, this is, <laughs> this is just water every day. It's relieving, yeah. uh, you know, to change that direction, to change your movement. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been really, really helpful. Uh, you know, the trademark question I ask on these is, what, what conversation, uh, final question, what conversation do you think we should be having in this area that we're not having? And what, maybe what questions are we not asking that we should be asking about this subject? Yeah, for me, it's, it's the question of redemption. Hmm. I can stop behaving as a gay man. I can come to faith. And I can stop it. Hmm. And then what? Or I can stop behaving homosexually and then try really hard to behave heterosexually, which is kind of what the church's view is. Hmm. Just stop that and do that. And try not to let us know too much about it. Hmm. Right? And I tried, and I did that for 20 years. And that's just not good enough for me. And then when I understood the covenant more, the new covenant more, as a reflection of the covenant of redemption, Hmm. the new covenant as a reflection of the covenant of redemption, um, working out my salvation with fear and trembling as a means of 
God's redemptive purposes in my life, seeing all of scripture as the historical redemptive narrative. God is about redemption. Mm. What does that mean? Mm. The way I right now describe it is God is making me better off than if I had never sinned in the first place. Mm. Using my sin to accomplish that. Mm. He has taken my sin, my sorrow, my shame, my struggle, and not taken it out of the way, but actually used it to give me spiritual gifts, redemption, mm. to give to others because it is better to give than to receive. This is how I can love well. I'm designed to love, love God and love others. This is how I can love well and find purpose in my life through his redemptive purposes. Right. So because I was judged and condemned so harshly growing up, I, I now can have the gift of mercy. Hmm. Because I was hurt so deeply, I now can have the gift of grace. Because I had to read people well to be self-protective, I now have the gift of discernment. Because I was considered stupid and called such all my life, I now have the gift of teaching. See, God uses my story mm. to give me something to offer the kingdom. His gospel, his good news is the story of reconciliation and redemption. He uses that story of sin, struggle, sorrow, and shame as reconciliation, drawing me to himself. And then he gives value to that story as redemption, giving value by giving me something out of that, not in spite of that, but out of that, right. to give to, to others in that kingdom right. um, or outside the kingdom as evangelism. Mm. I have a unique possibility to speak to people outside of Christ with the gospel because I know what it's like to live in that community and then having found Christ, I can reach into that community and mm -hmm. save those polluted by the flesh. Right. So a big part of it is, is that you don't then don't look at your past as uh, sort of, this was, this was just wasted time. Like, yes. you know, that it was, yeah. Yeah. And that's such a, it's such an interesting biblical theme. You know, it seems like, you know, you think of, you know, Genesis 50, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And it's so interesting that it's, you know, those, the word is exactly the same. The, the level of intentionality and God's level of intentionality right. are the same, right. are the right. same word, but it, uh, out of that sin, yes, God is, uh, and it's such a biblical theme, but you're in a way applying it to, believers should think of their lives this way, their own stories, whether it be same-sex attracted. And, and maybe that's one way of concluding this is, uh, uh, sort of take what we've 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 uh said together and then say what does this message 
for same-sex attraction have to say than do you think with people who aren't struggling with this? Because one of the things I think that the way that you talk about this and the way a lot of your conference talks are, um, it seems like part of what you're doing is saying the the ministry or the message that same-sex attraction, same-sex attracted people need to hear is the same message that Joe Minnick needs to hear and everybody needs to hear. It really is just the way the gospel works out in your life. And, right. and the story of people who don't have same-sex attraction functions in exactly the same way. So whatever your griefs were in that narrative was. And so maybe tie that bow on for us. How, do, how do, would you sort of then relate this then to sort of outside same-sex attraction? And, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I needed the gospel. Like everybody needs the gospel. Hmm. The, the, the left offers me less than the gospel. The far right offers me more than the gospel. You need Jesus and you got to do this and not do this and stop doing this and start doing this, right? Mm. I I just needed the gospel like every other lousy, rotten sinner. Mm. I just needed to be saved by grace, period, pure and simple. Mm. That's got to be the message of the church. Christ and him crucified with no additions or subtractions. And so once I be New St. Peter's is so such a powerful um, part of my story in that I really felt and becoming an elder there, especially that this shame soaked, sin-filled, same-sex-attracted guy became a shepherd there and can speak into the lives of his congregants without people going, ew. Right. Like, oh, I'm home. This is the body of Christ, right? This is the body. This is how the body is supposed to work. I don't need a special group of same-sex attracted sinners. I just, I just need the little old ladies and the little kids. I need the, the straight women and the alcoholic men and the, the truck drivers and the bike runners. I, I, I just need the body of Christ. Mm. Mm. And yeah. I found it. And yeah. I've got it. And that's the message I preach. Like in back to Galatians. And if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one that I preached to you, let him be anathema. And the gospel he preached was the barriers between the groups has been dissolved. Mm. Mm. Well, this has been really helpful. Uh, you've been listening to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, and I'm here with Jim Pachta. Uh, and that's a, that's a wrap for us. So until next time, we'll see you later.